If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided let's give them a call. Welcome, Welcome to the, the Calling, Calling History, history Podcast. Podcast. Welcome back to part two of Deborah Sampson. We learned that Deborah's life was truly awful, making it even more impressive that she made so much of it. We learned what it feels like to know that your only purpose is to kill someone else. And we learned that her disguise was more than binding her breast and a man's military kit. In this episode, you'll hear about her first failed attempt at enlisting and how she chose the name Robert Shirtliff. We'll also talk about her relationship with Paul Revere and then close with a very emotional exchange on what this rough and tumble life had really cost her. Is this why he made you his waiter? Because he maybe got to the point where he felt like it was inappropriate for a woman to be on the battlefield, but at the same time he didn't take away from everything that you had done and he had a choice to either expose you or find another way to make you useful? Is that possibly what you're saying here? I don't believe that is possible. I believe the prospect of his dishonorable discharge for knowing of something occurring that was unlawful was far too great that he would have done that. I do believe he wanted, I do think, and I am, as I mentioned, friends with him, he did write letters to help in my petitioning Congress for a pension. He did support me in that manner. He did house me when I traveled in New York to deliver an oration about my service in the army. He put me up as a member of his family and lodged me for some time and I th certainly don't think he ever felt deceived but I can't go so far as to state that he believed that I was in fact a woman. I think he knew there was something different and he couldn't quite put his finger on what that was. Whatever he was thinking, he sounds like a good person. Yes, he is one of the finest, kindest gentlemen that I have had the fortune to, to know in my life. Let's talk about the physical disguise for a minute. So what does a day look like for you? You're on the battlefield. You're 22 years old. You just got done fighting some skirmish, and you guys get cleaned up, and you got blood all over you, and you bury the dead. And I'm talking about this like it's nothing, but forgive me for doing that because I'm trying to actually get to a point. So you wake up the next morning, and now you got to get ready. What is your process to become a man every morning? If there, oh, my process to become a man generally started in, in the wee hours of the evening after the others had gone to sleep. I would excuse myself from camp claiming a call of nature to relieve myself, and I would go deep into the woods where I prayed and prayed more than I have ever prayed in my life up to that point in time. Of course, I've prayed as hard since then for the health of my children and the health of my family, but I prayed no one would see me or hear me as I removed my coat, my waistcoat, and my shirt to tighten my bindings. And uh, I had saved up quite a bit of linen when I was working before the before my service I was taking contracts in various households in the town of Middleborough Massachusetts weaving and spinning and sewing making 
quilts and curtains and all of the necessaries of the household. And there's always scraps and leftovers of cloth. And I would save these because I knew that the linen was so fine, I might never be able to afford such a cloth on my own. And I was able to fashion myself with bindings because of this, but they would often loosen up, particularly in combat. And there was no way I could let them get slag or slack, I should say, because the form of my, the shape of my kit would change and it would be fairly obvious that there was something lumpy that was unusual in the form. And so that was really where the process began, was the deep in the woods, the rebinding of the breast. When that had been adequately achieved, the clothing was restored and the walk back to camp and the explanations of why I had taken so long. And additionally, if I did need to relieve myself, that was in itself the the task. I was unable to often relieve myself at the same time as others because I didn't want to be shoulder to shoulder in any capacity with others in that, in that activity. And so returning to camp with the explanation of, oh, my digestive issues and whatnot was part of the ploy, part of the charade, the masquerade. And then the next morning, washing oneself, I mentioned hands and face, usually. That was the beginning of that process. Whatever food rations were available to us, collecting that food, whether it be salted, highly salted meat or any fish we had caught in the Hudson and the river there, and any other foods, hardtacks that were softened by rum and water, that was part of the process, of course. Hearing the news of the day, hearing the orders of the day, if we were to be on the move or if we were to stay put. And I know not what else to tell you in that regard. It was just as any other soldier to sit and wait, really, wait for orders. Cleaning my musket, of course, if I had not been able to do so the night before, I should mention cleaning my weapons. I did like to write as often as I could in my journal. That was really the only time I could be honest with my condition and my situation. So that was, if we were to stay put and not be on the move, my favorite pastime. I would sometimes play cards with the other men, whist being a favorite. However, I would generally, as I mentioned, keep to myself. And that journal was really in some ways my only friend, my only confidant. But of course, cleaning one's weapons is a soldier's duty. And without it, the firelock will surely explode or malfunction when you next need it. I would do some basic cleaning, which could take about an hour. And then if more intensive cleaning, thorough cleaning need be done, the armorer would generally be on at camp to assist with that. This journal sounds like a dangerous piece to carry with you. If this were to be found, if somebody were to pick this up, Were you ever close to somebody finding it, or did anybody ever find it? Nobody found it. I kept it in my necessaries bag, which is where generally your necessaries bag or your possibles bag, as it is sometimes called, is on you at all times because it is things that you are necessarily needing at a great frequency or in a moment's notice. Often you'd have a writing, a quill in there, some ink perhaps, some paper, a bit of food rations might be in there, and the event that you are unable to have a proper meal in any suitable amount of time, any book that you might have decided to bring with you might be in there if there is space. Some carry drawings of their family that either they have composed or others have composed for them. And uh, any bits that are important to you. And it is in that possible bag that I kept my 
my journal, I slept with it. I never left it or abandoned it, ever. When I was sent back to West Point after my discovery in the outskirts of Philadelphia by Dr. Binney, we were part of the way traveling by boat, and a, a, a harsh storm came and confronted us and rocked the ship in a manner that many of our belongings, were they not tied down to the ship, were lost. And my possible bag was one of those, as well as my knapsack and everything that I carried on myself except for the letter from Dr. Binney, which I kept in the inside pocket of my regimental coat. So much of what I had from the war was swallowed by the sea, almost in an attempt to omit that the occurrence had ever, well, occurred. So your journal is at the bottom of the sea? The river. Or the river, okay. <laughs> the water. Yes. It's, it's, the journal from my campaign, yes. The journal from later in life on my national lecture tour I have in my possession. Oh, okay, good. Yeah, I, want, I definitely want to hear about the lecture tour in a little bit. So I want, can we go back a minute and let's talk about your enlistment? You were eager to get into this war, it appeared, because when you originally enlisted – that didn't go very well the first time, is that right? Yes, and I will say that my eagerness did still have me waiting until 1781, a war which was already six years in the making. So I am uncertain whether that can equate to true eagerness. There was certainly a lot of consideration before the act was actually carried out. My initial enlistment in June of 81 was one of experiment, I shall say. It was one that was not particularly well thought out. It was one that occurred in my home of Middleborough, Massachusetts, at that time at least. Now I reside in Sharon. And it was at a tavern at which I should not have been in man's attire. I should not have been using an alias. I should not have been portraying of the opposite sex. And that is for many reasons. I, one, one who writes with one's left hand, which, although there are quite a few of us, it is beaten out of us as young children because you can't write with your left hand. You will destroy that which you have written in the ink that we use will immediately be upon your hand and not upon the paper. So most are taught to write with their correct hand, the right one. Unfortunately, I did not have proper schooling or formal education of any sort, so I had taught myself to write with my left hand, but in a very peculiar manner of holding the quill so that my hand sort of curls around, lifted in the air around that which I have already written. That in itself was noticeable to some because I was, whether you are one to believe this or not, a schoolmarm in the Middleborough, in the Middleborough school, so a schoolmarm or as you might call it a school teacher. And I was the only female who taught in the Middleborough School. So just in that sense alone, I was one who was known about town. And because I made some of my competence by teaching, many had seen me write. And therefore, many had seen me write in this peculiar fashion. And that in itself was a, an indicator of someone who perhaps should not have been in the tavern at that at that time and additionally I had injured my pointer finger of my hand while I was working on the farm during my time at the Thomas homestead and therefore because the finger was never properly set or seen by a, a physician I c cannot properly bend it it remains stuck in a slightly half-bent position and that combined with the un 
unusual way of writing was enough that when I did not have the courage to report for duty, word about town was that the school teacher Deborah Sampson had been seen in the tavern in male attire, in male garb. And I was questioned by the leaders of the community, and I was discovered and forced to repay my bounty, which had been given me, and I was cast out of my church. And it took quite some time for me to overcome the humiliation of that entire debauchery. It was really, truly a, an ill-thought-out expedition on my part. And uh, I did not attempt enlisting again until over, or about a year later, I should say. So, but you had actually enlisted, and your intention was to go fight, and and as you get caught, the church has a problem with what you've done, and so were you really involved with the church? I am a woman of God, and I was born into the faith that would be presently known as congregational, and when we were quite young, was still of the Puritan faith. And as a woman of God, I was taught that there is only one way to worship, but even within the Middleborough town limits, there was more than one church, one a Baptist, and I was told that they worshipped in a different capacity, but to the same God, and that God was all, that same God is all that truly mattered. However, I never felt comfortable with the Puritan way of living. The Puritan church dictated that at the age of 18 I must marry, that there was no other choice, that my life was to serve my husband. And that was blasphemous in my mind. For when I turned 18, my mother returned into my life after having bound me out and told me, informed me that she had found a suitor for me. And I told her there would be no such suitor and no such thing as marriage in my life because I had served as a servant since I had been cast out at the age of five. Truly, I didn't feel a servant in the house of my aunt, but I did feel a servant within three years of that time after she had passed. And I said, I will be no such servant for the remainder of my days. For I did not know how many days that was, and I knew that I was not going to spend them under the, under the ownership or the mastership of someone else. That was really, unfortunately, the end of my discussion with my mother and in many ways the end of my relationship with my mother. But the Puritan Church would not have such a thing. And so I left the Puritan Church and joined the Baptist Church. And it was indeed the Baptist Church that at that time was very accepting of us masterless women. And we were seen to be of an unusual countenance and character, but one that was accepted by the community as sort of a new woman, a new type of woman. And it was the Baptist church that in fact cast me out when my escapade and debauchery were made known. I am still a woman of God. I am of the Unitarian leaning now. You had mentioned a little bit ago, you were talking about some of the relationships with soldiers and you, some of the people that you spent time with, and you used the word confidants. On the battlefield, you met other women that were dressed as men. Is that correct or is that is incorrect? I don't know of any woman that I met, but there were potentially other women on that field that were as I and were playing a masquerade. There were women on the battlefield at all times. That were Spouses and daughters. No, that were camp followers and were dressed in the women's garb. Women were not really permitted. I, the only time I ever wore male garb 
prior to my enlistment was sometimes when I was doing very hard labor, I did petition to Master Thomas to wear our breeches, to wear a man's working shirt. By the constitution, or I should say just by the fabric and the composition of a woman's gown, I cannot raise my arms above my shoulders, making it nearly impossible to wield an axe. And so in doing so, in wearing a man's shirt, I could not conceivably wear a woman's petticoat. It simply would... I, I just petitioned to wear a men's breeches as well. That was the only time. There was only once or twice that I dared be so bold. But otherwise, there were no women to speak of dressed as men on the battlefield, at least none that I am aware of. But as I've mentioned, there could have been others like myself who carried their secret to the grave. And I am not one, or nor am I privileged to expose that secret if it were to so exist. There were nurses and laundresses, and as I mentioned, those camp followers who often took on those roles. There were some who were older, who couldn't participate in the daily duties of a, serving an army. Washington would generally not allow a woman to follow unless she could carry her weight, at least, and support the army in some capacity. There were no, as you might call them, working women or women of ill repute who were permitted on the field, whether there were some that participated in that behavior under the cover of dark of night, I know not, but you had to prove your worth if you were to follow the army in any capacity. Now, there was one nurse, I will state, a woman who aided with the doctor, who I felt a very much a leaning toward. I found her to be very amicable. I found her to be very pleasant, very well-spoken, and someone whom I'm certain was situations and circumstances different would have been a confidant and a great friend. And perhaps I overstepped my boundaries and did begin speaking to her in such a fashion, so much so that I believe she took a liking to me and I had to put it at an end when the situation became too bold to speak of. I was not capable of telling her in the eye. However, I did make it clear to her by writing that I was of the same sex, although I put no name on that to distinguish or identify that it was me who had written it. I never really talked to her again after that point, but so there, there were women, women on the field at all times. There were women that, that maybe had desires to have some sort of romantic relationship with you? I'm a pretty good-looking 15-year-old boy, if I may say so myself. <laughs> okay, then definitely. So softer features. So those women love to go after those softer features. Gosh, that's interesting. We are at a period of time in, in this era where fashions are changing quite a bit. Fashions are really, they are becoming much more loose and flowing. And the waist of our gowns has risen up to just below the bosom. And men have started to wear full-length trousers. And these are not just working men or men at the sea. These are men of great distinguishment. And uh, in my youth, men and women did not appear so dissimilar except by which garb they wore. Hair was long for us all. Whiskers were unheard of, although the soldiers in my unit would make would ridicule me for not being able to grow whiskers. Every man awoke with whiskers, nearly every man awoke with whiskers or hair upon the face, and then immediately set about with the razor blade to remove it. There is no man of any sort of quality or distinguishment who will wear hair upon his face. And that is a matter of cleanliness. 
And so if you remove the garb from the male and female sex, except perhaps put the leaves in front of the places where Adam and Eve once wore them, there is little that change that is seen that is different. Our faces can be very similar. And since no one was seeing my body underneath the kit, the face seemed very similar. Yeah, no, it makes it makes complete sense. Were there was there ever a time where you faked shaving? No, because I would have cut myself. <laughs> okay. I don't know if maybe you have you ever razor. tried to shave a part of your body that had no hair on it, no distinguishable hair on it, with a very sh you understand these are very sharp blades. On these these blades are not perhaps I'm not certain how you remove the whiskers from your face, but I am certain that the blades we use were of a much sharper a much sharper quality than what you may use today. You are absolutely right. There is no way that you could shave bare skin. You just couldn't do it. You'd have cuts all over the place. You, yes, exactly. Exactly. This is correct. Let's talk about the the moment that you were discovered. And I think that was by Dr. Binney, right? Correct. Okay. Tell me about that moment. So we were sent to Philadelphia. The army, the soldiers in the army had been released without payment, nor did they have back payment. And so many of these soldiers had fought upwards of six years and had nothing to show for it and were in severe debt and were at risk of losing their farms and losing their property. And they rioted upon the city of Philadelphia. The city of brotherly love was in a state of crisis. And the Massachusetts 4th was sent to squelch the rebellion. Unfortunately, as we approached the outskirts of Philadelphia, as often happens in Philadelphia in the hot months of the summer, a fever tore through. I do not believe this was the yellow fever that would take so many in subsequent years. However, it was a malignant fever and it, it affects the constitution of one in camp. It is really just a matter of time before all are affected by it. And those who are able to survive will carry on and those who are not able to survive will perish. But it does mean a great number of ill and incapable men and women at one time. So I actually succumbed to the fever. I was... I had lost my consciousness. I was not aware of being taken to hospital. I have no recollection of being seen or carried into the infirmary. I woke up in Dr. Binney's house on the outskirts of Philadelphia near a week later. That is when the fever lifted. And they cared for me while I convalesced for some time thereafter as well. So to answer your question, I have no recollection of the moment when Dr. Binney discovered my sex because I was not awake when it occurred. I'm guessing you had to wake up at some point and then realize something was wrong. I, I would guess they even changed your clothes. Of course. Do you recall the, what that felt like? I don't because I was... Have you had a fever that's been so high that you're unable to process a thought, you're unable to sleep, so you're sort of in this state of half awake, half sleep for days on end. You're profusely sweating, but at the same time shivering. You are incapable of swallowing because the sides of your throat have closed up. It is difficult to breathe. It is difficult to move. These were the feelings that I had before. There is just a blackness. As Dr. Binney told me, several days where I did not for one moment awaken from what he observed and his wife observed and their nurse who cared for me tended to me in their home, private nurse, observed. And I have no recollection of having my clothing cut away from me. I woke up in his home, quite comfortable in fact, and then the shock, the terror, 
washed over me as I tried to understand whether I should still play the role, the actor that I had played for the previous, at that time, approximately 16, 17, 16 and a half, almost 17 months of my life before it became quite clear when all were summoned to the room that the secret was released, the secret was undone. So how did people react then? The question was, how did I get there? The explanation was as straightforward as the one I have given you this day. I chose not to lie. In that moment, I recognized that they had saved my life, and I owed them the courtesy of honesty. So I explained that I had been indentured, and that I had worked very hard, and that I had deemed myself incapable of living the life that I had seen in my absolute future, and that I took an opportunity to have another life. Whether that was a life of dishonesty or not, it was just another life, a life that I wanted more than the one that I was living. And that um, he asked if I, if I had earned the, because my coat did have the markings of a corporal, even though I never did fully accept a formal commission of more than a private soldier. And the, the pension I have fortunately just been awarded has been in the honor of a private soldier. Patterson was insistent that I wear the ranks of, a, of an officer. And I, as I mentioned, I will follow orders. And so I did allow that rank to be presented on the kit. And I did allow myself to be referred to in that manner. And that was the first question after how did you get here was, did you earn this rank that appears upon your kit? To which I replied, yes, I have. And that, I believe, was the moment when Dr. Binney realized that he had a very difficult decision to make regarding how to disclose my identity to the authorities, to the officers of the army, and potentially to the government, as we had just received word that the treaty had been signed in Paris. And he de decided, although I know not exactly what he wrote in the letter that he placed in my possession, he did decide to send me to West Point under the recommendation of an honorable discharge from service. I will mention as well that the military was to be dissolved and had in fact already started to be dissolved. And the dissolution of the Continental Army was one that Congress had decided upon because of lack of funding and because of a reliance and a love of our tradition of volunteer militia. So when I arrived at West Point with letter in hand from Dr. Binney, knowing not what my future held, I knew not what had been written in the letter, but in fact Dr. Binney had recommended a, an honorable removal from service, I would not have been able to serve even if I had returned as a man because the 4th Regiment was dissolved and all but one regiment were in fact dissolved in the Continental Army, and that was the 1st Regiment of New York, and it was in West Point that they were stationed. That was really the telling of it. In fact, he wanted to know what was true and what was false, and I, he never asked a penny of me. He never expected a word of thanks, but he did know that if he had left me in the hospital upon discovering my sex, that I would, as I mentioned, been placed in a prison and been left to most likely die of my illness. And he made the very difficult and very dangerous decision to essentially smuggle me from the field hospital and bring me to his, the safety and security and privacy of his own home. Why yes. would you go to prison? Because it is illegal. W it is illegal. 
you may not portray the opposite sex. It is not permitted. You may not oh. conceal your identity. You may not lie under oath about your identity when enlisting in the military. And I do hope that law still, I do hope that the enlistment, at least to enlist under honorable circumstances, although uh, it is not how I enlisted, I do hope that still maintains in its integrity to this day. But it is against the law to use an alias in the service, to be dishonest of your identity, to uh, enlist under false pretenses, and to portray the opposite sex. I suppose it really is that simple. See, and the reason that that's not obvious to me as I ask the question is because I'm picturing our country being young, trying to establish itself, fighting for freedom, and the truth is if anybody stands up and says, yeah, I'll fight for our freedom, I'm like, great, that, those are the people that we need people that are going to stand up, but you're right. It's just, it's representing yourself as somebody that you're not. It, it would be illegal. If you went and borrowed money from somebody and said you were somebody else, so that, you, that would be illegal as well. I, I guess it really is that simple. That makes sense. May I ask you a query? Yes, please. Now, in your time, are women permitted to serve? In, in our time, women are absolutely permitted to serve. In fact, in our time, when they look back at you, they see you as one of the one of the first women that served on the battlefield. You're a historic figure because of that. And so, yes, absolutely. Women can do whatever they want. We haven't quite had a woman president, but there's a woman vice president, and I think we're, get, I think we're getting close to that moment. I can't tell you how happy this makes me. <laughs> well, honestly, the women that want... Women run corporations right now, and there are women of your time that have stepped beyond what they were told that they should do or could do that have laid the foundation for these sorts of things. So, yeah, it's pretty fantastic, actually. Well, see, now I'm showing my fairer sex. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're a mom now. You, with these kids, you're going to be crying every other day as it is. I wanted to ask you about your, your family. Did, how did your family react when they found out about this? My husband... Benjamin is an unusual sort, and he found it quite fascinating. I was still clothed in the male attire when we were made aware of one another's existence through my aunt, Alice of Stoughton, Massachusetts. You yes. met your husband dressed as a man? I was still in the male garb, yes, in the male attire, yes. Oh, that's fantastic. It was unusual in that sense that I think he was in awe, in admiration, he had not himself served, and he is not of the Constitution to serve. It is not in his nature. I don't think he could hurt someone else, even if it meant dying himself. I think he would have laid down his arms and preferred to have died than have taken the life of someone else. And I, I respect that. It is very gentle. It is a gentility that he has that is makes him a man who is easy to love. And... I think there was an aspect of admiration. He and his father served in a different way. They smuggled grain into the town of Boston during the siege when the inhabitants of the town were starved by General Gage in the Port Act, which was the closure of Boston Harbor to any incoming or outgoing vessels. And so I, I admire and respect him for the way that his family did what they could with their means, which were great at that time, to help those who were so needy. But we did meet one another in a most peculiar sense, and we were immediately attracted to one another. And perhaps it is because of that variance in, in constitution and that dichotomy of behavior and an attitude toward the world that we were so drawn to one another. And 
married, and seven months later, our first child was born, but please keep that in the privacy of you and I together. It's just math. It's not so atypical as you might think in the late 18th century. We are as far from Puritans, those who existed 150 years before us. If the pendulum has swung from one side with the Puritan, the pendulum has swung to the other side with the American Patriot. Yeah. My family today, my children are changing in how they perceive my service. When they were young, they were belittled. Your mother, the brute soldier, I believe was one of the many savage terms given to me. Men and women who had never met me before, who made the most peculiar assumptions of me, claiming that I was a manly woman and that I was too stupid to know my place. It is not easy as a young boy and young girl. I have, I have four children. I have Earl, Mary, Patience, and I have adopted a child named Susanna, whose mother died five days after she was born. And it is not easy to be raised in a very small, judgmental, in some ways, community where one whispers about the other and the neighbors write in their journals about their neighbors and the gossip and rumor of town. It's not easy to attend school or to walk the shops and visit the ordinaries in that environment and my children did suffer greatly because of it. It is my grandchildren, of which I am proud to have a few at this time. They are the ones who call me the old soldier and boast about my service to their friends. And now, having just received this pension, it is, I believe, time for my own children to change their voice and their view on what I have done. I do believe the honor and recognition from the government and the subsistence and support that they might provide will be, in some sense, a good catalyst for their change in thought. I understand today is the day that Congress approved that a pension for your time. And I mean, that. It, I'm guessing that probably took a lot of work. It's been over 20 years since I laid foot on the battlefield, and I, I did receive in 1792 a back payment from the Congress of Massachusetts, and that letter was signed and approved by Governor Hancock. That awarded me somewhat of 35 pounds sterling, for we had not yet transitioned to the U.S. dollar, and then another 10 years before I finally received pension, invalid pension, I might mention. You must prove disability and injury from war in order to receive payment from the government for service in the War of Independence. Uh, and I have just been added to the invalid list, the invalid pensioner list. Yes, it is a great day. Four dollars per month I will receive. I hope I may petition for a, an increase in that, for that will not su serve to support a family of seven, for we do have a servant who lives with us who is part of the family named Patience Payson, who is a wonderful person. $4 a month does not sound like enough money to feed the whole family. It certainly is better than nothing, but it's nice that they've come around and seen that you deserve some sort of payment, though. It will feed my children, but my husband and I and patients would not subsist off of that, no. It is nice. It is, it is, it is due time. You'd mentioned Hancock, John Hancock. It will perhaps surprise you for me to mention that whether Mr. Hancock is... I should say was, pardon me, for he has passed. Whether Mr. Hancock 
Governor Hancock, president of the Continental Congress, Hancock, is aware that I am in fact related to him through his aunt, Lydia Henchman, who raised him along with his uncle, Thomas. For our, his aunt and my family can trace their roots to one another. So he is in fact a cousin, perhaps second removed or third removed or so. By that point, we're all related. So it is, I am related as closely to you perhaps than I am to John Hancock Maybe. Esquire. Maybe. Not by our ability to drink, that's for sure. <laughs> Do you also, when you talk about your relations, I understand that you had relations that were on the Mayflower. Yes, my, my direct relations. My mother, Deborah Bradford, is the great-great-granddaughter of William Bradford, governor of the Plymouth Bay Colony. My father, Jonathan Sampson Jr., is of the John and Priscilla Alden family. So both sides of my family. There was a Sampson, I believe Henry, I would like to say, on the Mayflower, spells his name as I originally did, S-A-M-S-O-N. Later on over time on various documents, folks have added a P to my name, which is neither here nor there, for spelling is as it sounds for my contemporaries. However, I'm not aware that Samson, that gentleman, is either Henry or Isaac. I am un able to recall the name now, but it is another Samson, though I, I fear I know of no such relation to him. It's been a lot of years. Are you friends or acquainted with Paul Revere? Oh, he is a good friend of mine. I'm very happy and proud to call him a very good friend. What can you tell me about Paul Revere? Mr. Revere. Mr. Revere is a man who knows all it seems. He knows everyone and he knows all about them. And I don't mean in the gossip sense. I mean in the sense of caring and reaching out and attempting to assist. He uses whatever means he has to uplift and raise the lives of others, at least those who he believes deserves that. And he has, so he has moved of late to Canton, Massachusetts. He established the Revere and Sons Copper and Brass Foundry in that town and I want to say 1800 has since sold his home. He lived in the north end of Boston or as some might call it the island of North Boston for nearly his entire life. He was born there, raised there, met his first wife Sarah there and then when she passed his second wife Rachel there. They lived at 19 North Square. Later they sold that home I believe they bought a home on I would like to say Charter Street although I might be mistaken. However he has since sold the, that property as well and purchased a home nearby the foundry in Canton and Canton being the neighboring town of Sharon. We are only somewhat of uh, 10 miles distance, which is 10 miles is just a, less than a day's walk, so it is really nothing to think of when we are going to visit our friends. There were various times when he owned a horse, and, and there have been times in my life that I have owned a horse, but more often than not, I'm seen walking and have no problem doing so. Although when it rains, that injury to my leg does seem to fester and show and rear its angry head. But we met one another more so through his ambition and endeavor than my own. He had heard rumor about town, about the woman soldier, and he had reached out to me. And so we met at Cobb's Corner, the place of the tavern at which I have mentioned you and I should meet. Perhaps you can drink some cider, which is, I believe, of less inebriation ability than the rum that I so choose to imbibe. Oh, and don't even I... start there. I'm not drinking cider. 
Oh, <laughs> all right, then. You can have some tea if you are of that persuasion. I would prefer if you drank coffee or at least uh, chocolate of the hot chocolate variety, but if you're going to drink something else, then you just let me know what it is. I'm sure they can help you there at Cobb's Corner. Mr. Revere became quite enamored with my story. I will use that word very purposefully, for he became really intent on helping me. And there were many a time when I called on him for help because he made it so clear that he was there to help and assist as needed. I borrowed money from him, $10, in fact. I still have to repay him that, actually. Oh, I do not want to remind myself of that. In fact, I will keep that in the recesses of my mind for now until I have started to receive these pension payments, and then I will do my diligence to repay him what he is owed. However, it was he who really did help to make this day possible, for it was, in fact, he who wrote a letter to the government, to Congress, requesting that I receive a military pension. He wrote that letter to our mutual representative, William Eustace, and I do have a copy of what he had written before me now, for he had shared that message with me, and I am so humbled by what he has written. I don't want to bore you by reading it all, for it is rather lengthy, but... He did write, I have no doubt your humanity will prompt you to do all in your power to get her some relief. I think her cause much more deserving than so many others to whom Congress has been so generous. Revere was a good man. Revere is a good man. Yes. You have been so generous with your time, and I am thankful for taking this time. If your husband was anything like me, you would have to divorce him because he would never stop asking you questions because your life is so interesting. So I I think my him. husband is a lot like you, to be frank. <laughs> is he? <laughs> yes. And divorce so have... is not something that I can consider. Yes. It is not uh, permissible. <laughs> Rightfully so. Rightfully so. Needless I... to say, I love my husband and I love my family. And all marriages have challenges, of course, as you... Are you married, Tony? I am. I am. And I, of course, I have a marriage without any challenges, right? Which I'm, of course, kidding. <laughs> we are of the same. So I see not much has changed, though perhaps hundreds of years have passed. You and I are still quite alike, and I hope we still have and maintain the, the semblance of respect for one another and dignity for our roles in society as we so bravely possessed in, in my day and continue to do so. Well, most definitely. I, and in as I respect your time, I, I just have a couple last questions I'd like to ask, and and then I'll just thank you because I really enjoyed this. Your first of all, do you prefer to be called by your first name or your last name? Do you have a preference? Oh, you can call me Deborah. You can call me Deb. Please don't call me Debbie. I've never been one for that. Your friends do call you Deborah, though. Deborah. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Where did Deborah? Where did you come up with the name Robert Shirtless? Robert is my brother. He died when he was very young. Shirtless is a common surname in the Plymouth Bay colony where I was reared. Plymouth Bay, too, I am not certain if you're aware. I know Massachusetts is one commonwealth now, but Massachusetts was two colonies. The Massachusetts Bay colony includes Boston and all the way out through the Berkshire Mountains and all the way up into, I believe, it might come to be known as the main territory, maybe one day be a state of its own. 
but the Plymouth Bay colony includes the South Shore of Massachusetts, Cape Cod, and the islands of Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket. So I'm from the Plymouth Bay colony where shirtless is a very common surname. However, it is spelled differently depending on your family. Some spell it S-H-I-R-T-L-I-F-F. Some spell it S-H-U-R-T-L-E-F-E. Or some combination thereof of letters. Again, spelling is often as it sounds and families adopted varying spellings for the same names. Some having immigrated from Britain and some from the Dutch persuasion as well. We sort of mixed together and names changed in that manner. But because this name was common enough not to arouse suspicion and unique enough to not have one particular spelling, it seemed a good idea and a good option for a surname that would avoid having too many questions of the, oh, do you know Mary Shirtliff? Are you acquaint- Are you related to her? Are you familiar with the Shirtliffs of Thatcher Street? Are you- so on and so forth. So it was a convincing name to choose. So you could easily say, oh, no, that's a different one. They spelled Different family. Yeah. You understand. That's yeah. interesting. When you were enlisting the second time and became part of the Army, and you first told them your name was Robert Shirtliff, and they just wrote it down and acted like this is Robert, you had to be thinking, oh my gosh, it worked. <laughs> it worked. I had for some time been walking about town in male attire, and I had walked quite a fair distance because I was, perhaps you might not want to hear this, but I was shopping for the highest bounty. So a bounty, in the latter years of the war particularly, when men did not want to re-enlist for their three years of service, as many of them had served three years without payment, Families would bound together because each town was required to send a certain number of men to serve, depending on the populace of the town. And for those communities that had the means who did not want to send their sons or themselves back to service, they bound together and offered up money for folks from other towns to come who were needy and looking for opportunity, like myself, to serve in their place. And I traveled quite a ways to find where the highest bounty was offered, and that turned out to be Uxbridge, Massachusetts, where (laughs) a bounty of 60 pounds sterling, which was an unfathomable amount of money, more money than I had ever possessed at one time in all of my life. And I walked around that entire time in the mail garb, in the mail kit, and no one seemed to bat an eye at me. They nodded their heads and continued on. So it was already in my condition that I believed I could do it when I signed my name as Robert Shirtless. I understand that I think you were one of the first women to do a speaking tour about your experience on the war. What kind of reaction did you get when you were standing in front of people speaking? Well, I am, as the folks of New York City have reminded me, I think myself an actor and an actor I am not. However, that was the only truly scathing review that I received in one half years of national lecture tour where I visited the states of the northern United States of America. Most places, excluding the city of New York, not only applauded but asked me to return for an encore appearance when they had told friends and family and neighbors of the 
spectacle of my manual of arms being done to such perfection that, as they said, I seemed to make the muskets sing with every move, with every motion. And it was an exhilarating experience. I think there was some part of me that liked to play a part always. That's why I chose to play the part of Robert Shirtless. I wasn't afraid to pretend to be someone else, to stand up and play a role. And in many ways, I felt that is what I did at the appearances I made. And I will say that as far as I can be aware, I am the first woman in this nation to be paid to speak in front of an audience. And I'm very proud of that, nearly as proud of my service in the Army. But I am more proud of being a mother, of all things. Yeah, I can totally understand that. I only have one child, and once you have a kid, you you get that right away, whether you're a mother or a father, I'm sure. The last question that I want to ask you is now that the war is passed, you have your children, and you have your husband who seems like just a perfect match. He seems like he's the soft side to your hard side. It sounds like you guys are perfect for one another. I'm curious if I were to ask you what is the biggest challenge that you had adjusting to life after war, literally making a gender change. What was the biggest adjustment for you? Ill health. I have suffered since my discharge from aches and illness consistently. I suffer from pain in my eyes, in my ears, face, head, and teeth. That often leaves me bedridden for days at a time. As I mentioned, when the weather is foul, the injuries of war will rear their ugly heads. I have never been able to work the farm upon which I live in Sharon, Massachusetts, to the capacity and extent that I always hoped I would be able to work a farm that was in my own possession, my own property. I love working outdoors. So when I speak of hard labor, understand that hard labor out of doors came with the joy of being in nature, where I did feel truly free. The only time I felt truly free, even though I was doing the labor of others. But it's something about the outdoors that frees me. And I never was able to do the work that I so dreamed I would be able to do. As Washington returned to his farm at Mount Vernon after two terms of presidency, I so wished to return to the work of a farm and do so in health and in prosperity and in comfort. And I never had that. And that's because of the exposure to the elements of war, the elements of the weather, living out of doors for months. And it is not just the cold of winter. It was sometimes even more so the heat and the sun, the blaze of the summer sun that I believe weakened my constitution in a manner that I feel it has affected my health and potentially my ability to have more children. I feel comfortable saying that everything you described would affect anybody's health. And although nobody probably can do anything about this, I will leave you on this one thought. From what you told me, your life started pretty awful. And then you did some really hard things in the war, fighting for people's freedom. And then Now you have these children that you're taking care of, and you're doing all of this with metal from the war in your body. And I don't know if your health will ever get better, but I do know this, that there are people in history that have suffered and sacrificed so a lot of other people could live better. And in our time, there are a lot of women 
And there are a lot of people that know your story that will hear this, that will believe that they can do things and live a better life because somebody like you was willing to make all this sacrifice. And I don't know if that's any comfort, but your sacrifice has meant something. It was all I ever wished for in the world was to make the lives of others more comfortable by pursuing a life that I knew I deserved. For if we don't pursue the life that we know we deserve, we will never be able to expect that others will live in a life of freedom. Then we're going to mark that off then as mission accomplished. And I want to thank you for your time today. Is there anything that you would like to say before we wrap this up? I would like to say that based on what you have told me about my being an inspiration to others, which I could not possibly have thought would be carrying on until your day. I'm very proud of those folks who have been inspired by my story today, and I hope that it will inspire women to stand up. I fear that we may see war again sooner rather than later in this country or on our shores. However, I do remind folks that be mindful of who you disparage in the moment. Be mindful of following the masses when someone in a group says that you should hate someone or you should insult someone or you should think unkindly of someone. Think for yourself in that moment because when you are on the side of the masses, you must stop and ask yourself why and should I perhaps think in another way because those same people that you might disparage now, if what you say is true, Tony, you might be building statues to a hundred years in the future. And that is all I ask people to remember. Be careful of who you hate because they might be doing something that you did not have the courage to say or do. Very wise words. Thank you so much for all that you've done and thank you for your time. I thank you for yours. Can you imagine that? Deborah was shot in the leg twice and the fear of getting caught was so great that she begged the doctor not to tend to her wounds. Then she found a spot off to the side where she pulled out a knife and dug as much metal from her leg as she could. Then, once that horrific act was complete, she sewed the wound up with the shrapnel still inside of her. And her reward for all of this was a lifetime of pain. I'm definitely not going to complain the next time my air conditioner breaks or we're out of Pringles and I really wanted some. Jeez, how many people could exhibit this kind of strength when they were given so little to start with in life? Although Deborah Sampson is not a household name for many, her mark remains. In the 1782 official Massachusetts Soldier and Sailor of the Revolutionary War, Volume 14, page 164, if you look that up, you'll see the name Robert Shirtliff. And in 1983, she was proclaimed the official heroine of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, a well-deserved honor. I am so glad you're enjoying these podcasts. To learn more about Deborah Sampson and other influential and often forgotten figures in history, check out historyatplay.com. And you can learn more in the episode notes. If you haven't yet, please subscribe now to the podcast. I'm Tony Dean, and until next time, I'm History.